Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The week was not good to presidents and former presidents. Joe Biden marked his first full year in office, but it wasn't a happy anniversary. There was a broad, if not unanimous, consensus that a tenure that began with a series of accomplishments prompting comparisons to the New Deal and FDR is now mired in flawed handling of the virus and political stalemate, leaving the White House scrambling to construct strategies for resetting his tenure, looking for partial victories, and finding his lost mojo. As bad as Biden's week was, his predecessor's was worse. Trump got pummeled from multiple sides. The January 6th committee dropped subpoenas on his lawyers, who in the weeks after the election shamelessly carried forward various tall tales to suggest the election was stolen. It reached out to number one daughter Ivanka, who is known to have detailed knowledge of his activities and states of mind around the time of the insurrection. And it brought out information from cooperative witnesses that placed both Trump and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the thick of the planning to subvert the certification of electors. Trump also faced incoming from several other sources, the Fulton County DA, who convened a special grand jury to investigate charges growing out of his attempted shakedown of the Georgia Secretary of State, the New York AG, who in a court filing documented a dozen flagrantly false valuations of property by the Trump Organization, and, not least, emerging evidence of a broad scheme helmed by Rudy Giuliani to have slates of phony electors in seven states submit forged certifications to the National Archives, which may have violated a series of state and federal criminal laws. To take us through the twists and turns and thick and thin of a bruising week for the 46th and 45th presidents of the United States, I am happy to welcome a superb panel of prominent national correspondents. And they are Molly Ball, the national political correspondent for Time Magazine and a frequent television and radio commentator. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Pelosi, a biography of the first woman speaker of the House. Ball previously covered U.S. politics for The Atlantic and Politico. She's received numerous awards for her political coverage, including the Everett McKinley Dirksen Award for Distinguished Reporting of Congress. This is her first time on the podcast. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. George Conway, a prominent American attorney and also a co-founder of the Lincoln Project and a founding member of Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers standing up for the rule of law. He's also a contributing columnist at the Washington Post, including this morning where he has a trenchant column on the, as he puts it, brutal loss of the former president in his attempt to stop the subpoena from the January 6th committee. George, so pleased to welcome you back to Talking Feds. Nice to be back. And Michael Schmidt, an American journalist, author, and Washington correspondent for the New York Times, where he covers national security and federal investigations. 
He's part of two Pulitzer Prize winning teams, one for reporting on high profile workplace harassment cases, which contributed to the rise of the Me Too movement, and another for his coverage of Donald Trump's campaign ties to Russia. In 2017, Mike won the Livingston Award for National Reporting, which recognizes the best work of journalists under the age of 35. He's a national security contributor for MSNBC and NBC, and finally wrote the New York Times bestseller in 2020, Donald Trump versus the United States Inside the Struggle to Stop a President. Very happy to say he's also a regular guest on this podcast and particularly happy to welcome him today. Thanks so much for joining, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with Biden at the year one mark. This week marked the end of the first year of the Biden administration, prompting a series of evaluations and a rare press conference from Biden himself. I think we've got to start with you, Molly, and the cover story that you co-wrote for Time, which is pretty scathing. There's a growing sense, you write, that the Biden presidency has lost its way. An administration that pledged to restore competence and normalcy seems overmatched and reactive. And that's very pungent prose, but there's a whole flurry of articles like this, and they stand in stark contrast to the high marks and Remember the comparisons to FDR after the first several months? So as you see it, what happened? Well, I think there is a growing consensus that it's not going super well. In the article, we focused on a few areas, primarily COVID. I think most Americans saw that as job one for the president coming in. He inherited a difficult situation, but he also inherited these life-saving vaccines and did a good job getting those out to at least the American people who were willing to take them. Then there was that sort of mission accomplished moment where he, he declared victory and then came Delta and then came Omicron. And I think there's a feeling that, well, you could be forgiven maybe for being caught flat footed the first time. But the second time, you know, fool me once, shame on me. Shame on uh, whatever. We got gotcha. you. Saying goes. <laughs> you know, you know it. You ever heard the David Cost comedy routine on that? I commend that to listeners. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> So there's a sense that they're always a little bit behind the ball. They're just now getting to sending people rapid tests. They're just now getting to sending people masks. Are they prepared for the next variant if there's one after this one? And then are they speaking with one voice? The number one concern that most Americans have about COVID in the recent poll was just the confusing information. And that's where I think the buck really does stop with the president. He's the head of the executive branch. You have all these different agencies. You've got HHS, NIH, you know, Fauci, all these different people giving what seems to be conflicting advice when they go on television or speak in public, sometimes seeming to sort of make policy on the fly, which makes it harder for local policymakers to decide what to do and leaves regular people just kind of at a loss after two years of this difficult pandemic. So that's number one. Number two is in Congress where things started out pretty well, but now are sort of jammed. And you had this week, this sort of futile, what seemed to be show votes on the filibuster and voting rights, capping off the failure of the BBB, at least for now. And then third, just the competency argument. Biden's numbers really fell off a cliff with the Afghanistan withdrawal back in August, and they've never recovered from that. And I think more than any particular 
set of policies, particularly after Trump, people wanted to feel the proverbial firm hand on the tiller. And a president who, you know, has been out in public far less than his predecessors, particularly in unscripted situations, gets mixed reviews when he does come out, like he did uh, with the press conference this week. People seem increasingly to be wondering just whether he's up for the job, whether he's the strong leader to navigate the country through this period of multiple crises. So scathing, as I said, that's quite a bill of particulars. His defenders overall say two things, I think. One, actually, the economy and even COVID is in pretty good shape and there's a disconnect with the communications. And then they say a lot of the problems are out of his control, especially with razor thin congressional majorities. And Biden himself, in a moment of unusual peak, I thought, in assertiveness said at his presser, Name another president who's gotten more done than I have in the first year. George and Michael, do you grade him as harshly as Molly does? And do you have the same overall analysis of what is bedeviling him lately? I, you know, share part of it. That's kind of funny because I should not like Joe Biden at all, but I have very low expectations coming in, not out of disrespect for the incoming president, but all I want is a president who's not a narcissistic psychopath right now. And I'll settle for this guy. And I think part of it is the expectations. I think some people expected more from him than, than I did. I think liberals expected more in the way of liberal policies. And I think others expected more in other ways. And I think they did let expectations in certain ways get out in front of them with COVID. They had this bit of a conundrum. Everybody's getting vaccinated, but Not enough people are going to be vaccinated, at least in the short run, that you really have herd immunity. But you can't tell the vaccinated people they have to still stay home because what's the point in telling them to go get vaccinated? And then you have the whole situation where everything in the entire country basically opens up to a large extent and still enough people aren't unvaccinated. And then, of course, you have the variants. I think probably they should have been telling people it was going to be a lot rougher then still going to be rough even with the vaccines. But the problem is people are sick of this. They are just sick. Even people who are very much pro-lockdown in 2020, they're kind of done with it. And then you have the whole problem of parents and schools and so on, and it makes people very unhappy. And on the Afghanistan thing, I gave them kind of a break on that. I do agree that it really had a serious impact on his public approval ratings. I think that should be on question. But I don't know that any departure from that godforsaken place would have been orderly. And I certainly don't think it would have been orderly under any alternative universe where Donald Trump was reelected or managed to keep himself in office. I think that one of the biggest problems that I have with sort of assessing the moment is trying to take myself, I'm not saying out of the Trump era, but look at Biden after looking at Trump. So we looked at Trump for four years and there were legitimate questions about whether he was simply doing the day-to-day job and whether... He was doing the day-to-day job in good faith. And that sent us in the media in a direction of some pretty in-depth, extraordinary reporting to try and understand what was going on at the most basic level about whether the president of the United States was being the president of the United States. Now you have a much more traditional president, and we now have to go back to sort of a pre-Trump coverage of that president and assessment of that president. And the whiplash of that is just pretty extraordinary because it was only a year ago the president of the United States was trying to overturn a democratically election that had gone through. And now 
This is a much more traditional conversation about a president one year and how successful has the president been or not been compared to his base. These are just conversations that we just did not have over the Trump era, where it was a question of, is he doing his job? What are his basic motivations? And is he going to get in some sort of larger trouble? I mean, those are the central questions of the Trump era. That's so true. They're being graded on completely different scales and curves. And it's impossible really to compare. I guess my head is still sort of in the Trump era. It's like, I'll take anything. This is normal stuff of presidency that we used to have, as Mike says. So I don't get that unhappy about it. And of course, it's a very salient point because it's not just the natural compared to what, but we are actually looking at compared to what, to the extent he's unpopular and they contributes to a loss in the midterms. What does that mean for the prospects of a return to the horror show? Politically, it strikes me as pretty tricky. Also, I want to double back on something you said, George, because he seems to be getting it on both sides. On the one hand, you've got the progressive wing that seems very deflated, even bitter at his failure to go bigger, you know, the partial boycott of the voting rights stuff. But on the other, the mainstream supporters who, as both of you are emphasizing, just want to return to normal life, especially post virus. And a recent poll has a pretty low numbers that people saying the president is focused on the issues they care a lot about. So how does he try to thread that needle? Does he have to choose one direction or the other and increase the disenchantment of either the progressive wing or the normal, just get me back to regular life constituency? Well, I think politically he's best trying to stay in the middle where presidents are usually safest, at least until the current era. And I think there's another thing going on here, maybe, and maybe it's kind of a psychological thing for the country, which is we were like used to having the volume turned up to 11 for four years. You watch Final Tap, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's an immortal line. The amplifier was all the way up and then it was to 11, (laughs) if not 12. And it was just screeching and it was discordant and it was horrible for four years. And then now he comes in and there's just this sigh of relief for a few months where it's like, we don't have to turn on the television to hear some man raving as the presidential podium. But at the same time, I think the country got used to seeing the president on television. They still need some of the bluster that some presidents are good at. And that's not Biden. I think that's what they're trying to do now. I think with that 90 minute press conference, trying to get him out there more and to communicate. Because I think his lower profile he is, the less people think of him as being in command and doing things. Yeah, less FDR. Molly, you refer to the Build Back Better. I think there's a effort now to look small or put things in their constituent parts. What do you see him as being able to salvage now in the, over the next few months? Individual pieces of Build Back Better, climate change. Is there any way forward with voting rights and mansion if he's got to change his focus to more small-grained, where do they go? Yeah, on BBB, it's kind of a misnomer to say you can break it up in chunks because they really only get one bite at reconciliation. So whatever they can put in that 150-vote bill is 
Build Back Better, it just may be a lot smaller than the original, whether it's the $3.5 trillion or the $1.5 that Manchin secretly agreed to or whatever. But one of the strengths that Joe Biden, I thought, really brought to the presidency was not just that he was a senator forever and is supposed to you know, know how to work Congress, but he really had an ability to unite his party. And we saw that in the primary right after Super Tuesday, where unlike Hillary Clinton, he was able to bring Bernie Sanders and his supporters into the fold. And that's the result of his long tenure inside the Democratic coalition, knowing the activists, knowing the issues, knowing the left coalition. And so that's part of what's so perplexing about the way he has had so much trouble sort of triangulating between the progressives and the moderates in the party. Manchin, surprisingly, I think, given his profile and, and being from West Virginia coal country, he was said to be mostly on board with the approximately $500 billion of climate provisions in Build Back Better. It was some of the social spending that he was less sure about and then some of the budget gimmicks that were being used to bring down the price tag but particularly the child tax credit. And that's going to be a significant point of friction because there are a lot of Democratic senators who really, really, really want to find a way to extend that child tax credit. So there are negotiations going on. Is Manchin at the table? From what I understand, he still feels pretty burned. He feels that the White House broke its commitments to him back in December, and he's not really back at the table. So this is all just talk until you get Mansion and cinema in that room, but there is a fair amount of hope. There's also a lot of bad blood, right, in the uh, Democratic caucus right now. You have people like, I, I spoke to Bernie Sanders for this story. He is openly calling out Mansion and cinema, fellow members of the team, and saying that they potentially should be primaried. That's not necessarily good for unity. So it's going to take time to pick up the pieces. And I think the common element in all this is where is the president? He's the one who can bring together the factions of the party, who can bring together the House and the Senate, who supposedly had hope at the beginning he could even bring Republicans into the room. So does he have the ability to do it at this point? And it's similar, I think, on voting rights. They're not going to get either of these bills that would require suspending the filibuster, but there are now active negotiations on reforms to the Electoral Count Act. Those could incorporate potentially some other reforms to elections that are viewed as less partisan and that a fair number of Republicans are on board with because the next election, the vice president who will be presiding over the count of the electoral votes will be Kamala Harris. So I think both sides have an incentive to clarify that very flawed and confusing statute and to try to put some protections on that process that has been so chaotic. Paul Krugman has an interesting way of looking at this in his column today. He says, look, the public does indeed tend to blame presidents for anything bad. So whether fairly or not, all the malas with COVID, everything gets put on him. But he brings up Harry Truman, who, even though he was similarly pilloried, he then campaigned against do-nothing Republicans who were blocking his economic and housing agenda. And you've seen a few steps in this direction, especially during the voting rights speech. I'm wondering whether you think to sort of get his mojo back, Biden needs to make obstructionist Republicans a major theme of the midterms. I mean, I'm not in the business of giving political advice to right. presidents, but that is certainly the consensus of a lot of Democrats that I spoke to, that he needs to go on offense, needs to make this the proverbial referendum, not a choice, needs to point out how crazy the Republicans are being because they're the only alternative and they're not covering themselves in glory these days. So you saw him beginning to do that as you said, with the voting rights speech, which was not universally well-received, but certainly with the press conference. And I think that is clearly a tactic that they're 
going to start taking forward. I mean, one of the points that progressives like Sanders and Jayapal have made is that because there is democratic disunity, because these moderate Democrats are perceived as the ones standing in the way of getting things done in Congress, that has sort of let Republicans off the hook. They sort of don't have to answer for their opposition to this quite popular agenda. So you're going to see, as the midterms come closer, a concerted effort by the president and Democrats more broadly to really point the finger at the other side. Mike, do you agree? Because it does a little bit undermine one of his talking points. I'm always collegial and bring some of the other guys around. So it doesn't seem like it plays to his natural strong suits. Do you think this is the hand he's been dealt and he's got to go in that direction? He does seem to have a bit of a Pollyannish view of a Washington that doesn't probably exist in the way that he thinks it does. I understand why he sort of views the world that way and is optimistic about that. I think at the press conference this week, he was citing about how the Republicans really sort of stood for something during Obama or that they thought that they could do business with them and such. I mean, the idea that the relationship between Obama and the Republicans on Capitol Hill was something that he was wanting for is just sort of extraordinary, given the fact that they struggled in so many different ways to to work together. That struck me a bit. We're a year in. And as we can see, things can just change so quickly. And that's such a sort of a cliche in politics. At the end of Trump's first year in office, he'd gotten the state and local tax stuff done. Besides that, had not really accomplished much besides judges, was facing down an existential threat from Mueller, and then still manages to come much closer in the 2020 election than anyone ever would have thought. So it's still super, super early. You can imagine if you're focused on the midterms, we'll see whether some candidates in different jurisdictions actually try to distance themselves if it stays this bad. Though I think everyone wants him to be the flag holder for the party. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, we're doing something different and rather special. There's been this crushing disappointment in the last couple of weeks, as it seems that the prospects for voting rights reform have really hit the skids. And the door has closed definitively as Senators Manchin and Cinema have made it clear they will not support filibuster reform. But a proposal has been offered that might actually take this apparent checkmate and extend the game. And we are very fortunate to have one of the main proponents, Senator Al Franken. As everyone knows, he hosts the Al Franken podcast, one of the most popular podcasts on politics in the country. As everyone also knows, he served as U.S. Senator from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018. And as everyone also knows, that was just his second career after his stellar stint as a writer, comedian, and author. Senator, thank you so much for being with us. What is this talking filibuster proposal? Well, there's all kinds of permutations of this. You know, Norm Ornstein and I have been kind of talking about this for a long time. Just starting my first week in the Senate, on Thursday evenings, you do your last votes of the week, and then you go back to your office, and then you leave, and then you fly home, and I go back to Minnesota. 
So this is my first Thursday. And so I go down, you know, from the chamber to the subway and I run into Jim Bunning, who at the time I did not know was the crankiest senator in the Senate. And I said to him, Jim, have a great weekend. I'll see you on Monday. And he said, I don't have to be here on Monday. It's a closure vote. <laughs> so, and I realized, oh, yeah, we need 60. They don't have to even show up, right? And so I called Norm Ornstein. Who's, uh, we've been friends forever. We both grew up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And I said, why is it we have to come up with 60? <laughs> and, and, and then we start talking about 41. Why not they have to have 41? It's the same friggin' number. And then we started talking about the filibuster a lot. And one of the things that people never talk about is in 1976, I believe it was 76, they did a, a change in the filibuster rules and they changed it from two thirds present and voting, which if everybody was there, it was 67 to 60. And they thought that was going to make it easier to end the filibuster. It's actually the opposite. Now, that was when filibusters were rare. Everyone would show up to vote. Now, there's just constantly filibusters. So if you did two-thirds present in voting, when Jim Bunning doesn't show up and there's only 60 there, you can do two-thirds present in voting is 40. That's the threshold. But what happened is, is that Mitch McConnell started filibustering everything. And it was really with the intention of slowing everything down. And he said to his caucus, our goal is to make him a one-term president. There's all kinds of permutations, as I say. And they were going to do a talking filibuster for the John Lewis voting rights bill and for the Freedom to Vote Act. And I've talked a lot to Merkley, who's kind of the expert on the filibuster in the Senate. And I've talked to Manchin. I've talked to a number of Mansion's close friends, they're my former colleagues, and he's kind of a moving target a little bit on this because he's mm. been open to some kind of. So originally, what Norman and I were proposing, and I told this to Joe right after the special election in Georgia, that we could do forty-one, and they have to show up, and they have to do a talking filibuster, which means they have to have forty-one there when you call them. 341. So they can't leave. So they have to be there. Jimmy Stewart land. Yeah. Yeah. You can make it anyway. You can say 41 have to be on the floor at all times, which would mean nine of them at any one time could be off the floor. Yeah. But that means five hours a day that you could be off the floor. And that might be a little, I don't know. As I say, there's all kinds of permutations. But this one was there is also a two speech rule. So presumably, that's what they were going to use on this, that it would end after everyone who had spoken twice had spoken twice on their side, I guess. And if every speech was 24 hours long, like Strom Thurmond's was, there's 50 of them, that's 100 days of speeches. <laughs> but no more. That's the outer bounds. That's it. And it's over. Unless Ted Cruz wants to go 48 hours per speech. The best part about this is it's a debate. 
and everything you say has to be germane. You can't read green eggs and ham. And is there any reason to think that Manchin and Sinema, well, you say it's been a moving target. So that would be the notion is to try to make that the rule and get their support and then let them filibuster voting rights and maybe it takes 100 days, but they finally have to fold up their tent. They wouldn't take that long, but this wasn't even changing the rules It was just changing the rules for this vote. The proposal that failed was, yeah. Yeah. And they've done that a lot. And we just did it. We did it on the debt ceiling, right? And the thing that puzzled me with Joe is he put up this big poster saying that this has never happened. Yeah. Big never. And it's happened 160 times. And so that's 160 times more than never. So are we now at a point of a really clever and pragmatic proposal that would work that is not going to actually get purchased from the one or two people it needs to get purchased from? Is that where we the current state of play? That's what it appears to be. Yes. Thank you very much, Senator Al Franken, for explaining the talking filibuster. Senator Franken is now on tour around the country. His original 11 concerts have been expanded to 27. To see when he may be coming to a hall near you, you can go to alfranken.com. Biden's year was very big for that one news cycle, but the week was really dominated by many aggressive moves from the January 6th committee and just a flurry of possibly ominous legal developments for Trump and Team Trump. Let's start here because, George, your op-ed in the Washington Post this morning talked about the U.S. Supreme Court decision refusing to stay the January 6th committee request. And now, in fact, as we're recording, I think those 700 to 900 pages have all been turned over and the committee is pouring through them. How much would you pay to go look through those documents? Yeah, well, or at least about 50 pages. I mean, (laughs) it's interesting because a lot of them seem kind of dull and the sort of thing as a prosecutor, you build a second request for. Then there seem to be three or four dozen maybe that are some damn There got to be some gems in there. So let's return there. But first, you saw this as a total slapdown of Trump, more than just the result. What's your thinking there for why this is such a stinging rebuke? I think you called it brutal. Brutal. I mean, it was brutal in a couple of ways. It was brutal in how quickly it happened. And he only brought this suit on, I think, October 18th. And he went through the entire federal court system. I mean, the court still has a cert petition pending, but he he fundamentally lost because those documents are now produced. He went through the whole court system in three months. It's tough to lose that fast, as you know, Harry. It's really hard. And as I said in the column, I say the only competition he has for losing faster was himself in all of his 60-odd election lawsuits. It was brutal in that sense, and it was brutal in the reasoning of the courts, both below and ultimately in the Supreme Court. Judge Patty Millett, who was just a fabulous Supreme Court litigator in private practice, wrote the majority opinion for the D.C. Circuit, and she just cut him to bits. I mean, every single argument she disposed of in a masterful way. She said that Trump had failed to make a particularized showing of what harm would 
occur to him or to the country. She relied on the fact that President Trump was no longer president and that we have only one president and the current president made a good faith assessment of the prior president's claims. And the current president is the president and we should give him deference. That's an interesting point and I think an important and valid point because Article 2, Section 1 says the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States and you can't divide up the executive power. You can't have independent councils. You shouldn't have independent regulatory agencies. And I think what she was doing there was she was trying to write a bulletproof opinion, Judge Millett, and make sure she had conservatives on the point say, hey, look, we have one president, unitary president. Here he is. And he made this determination in good faith. What's interesting is that was the one piece of the court's appeals opinion that the Supreme Court basically cut back on in its five or six sentence order. It basically said, oh, wait, the, the, the question of whether a former president can invoke the privilege and be overruled by the current president is a very serious question. And we don't want to prejudge that. And it's hard. So ignore those parts of her opinion. And what's fascinating about that to me is why would you do that? Well, there's a quite sensible reason. And it was actually pointed out by the Trump lawyers. They did their whole witch hunt act and said that our political opponent, Joe Biden, is denying this privilege and harming the country. And this is why you have to give credence to what the former president says, because there's always going to be political stuff going on. And the court kind of bought into that when it carved back the lower court opinion. And you think about it. Yeah, that's a good point that Trump people make. What if you had this narcissistic maniac as president who was vindictive and tried to use a waiver of executive privilege to punish his predecessor, who was a political opponent? What if he had a future guy who was as bad as the former guy? In fact, we could have that in three years. The fascinating thing about the Supreme Court's opinion is that Trump's own argument kind of invoked the specter of himself, and he got traction on that argument, and it actually made the Supreme Court's decision worse for him because the court basically said, we're relying on the fact that this claim was so weak, it wouldn't have mattered even if he was president still. The ironies there are just enormous. George, are you saying basically that what you could end up with is like every time a new president comes in, the new president just dumps out all of the embarrassing, sensitive things of the previous administration? Is that what you're trying to say, that they're trying to stop? That's what the specter that Trump's lawyers were raising in their briefs. And Normally, I don't think conservative judges would have found that quite so appealing. But now, yeah, you could see, what if you had a crazy man back in to do that? And so what they basically just said is, we're not going to worry about the future. This case is so not even close that even if the former guy were still the present guy, that these privileged claims wouldn't stand. But guess who bit on exactly the point that you're making, Mike, was Justice Kavanaugh, whereas the standard response to it is, well, look, the current president also has the motivation to think about the office of the presidency. And Kavanaugh actually writes separately, and you can just see the scars from the Clinton wars and the replay of his furious confirmation battle and invoking the Clintons. And he was more focused on how one administration can take it to the next. So he wrote that expressly. But George is exactly right. It's the thoroughness of the Millet opinion that actually doomed Trump because they said he would lose anyway. 
And I just also want to say the salient point here really was the speed. I don't know if that was sticking it to Trump so much, but it's the exact thing we didn't get for years. And starting with the district court, everybody set an expedited schedule and the Supreme Court could have easily held this a couple months. And that's an eternity in the timeline of, say, the January 6th committee. And they were really conscious of it. They got a request from the Congress. Can you do this at your January 14th conference? And they did. So I don't know if that would happen with other harder questions, but it does suggest that maybe the delay strategy that worked so well before that the courts won't always let it happen. Look, I think the rule of decision here is that you don't get the time of day, whether you're a president or former president, if you incite an insurrection. It's been really interesting from the courts generally have been holding back till it comes to them. And then they've been really making some very vivid proclamations and opinions when they get a chance. All right, let's stick with the committee a little bit. We had these round of subpoenas to the legal team, Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis. It seems certain they won't get any cooperation there, right? So what's the committee's thought process? And is there some broader strategy? I think the committee's put themselves in a potentially difficult spot because they generate a series of headlines off of these letters and these subpoenas. And it gives a sense that this investigation has some significant momentum to it and it's closing in. And in reality, they're running into some real difficulties. So I think that one of the issues we've seen in previous Trump investigations, dating back to Mueller and pick your investigation, is that part of it is the expectation. Now, what is the expectation here that the public has or the left has or Republicans have for what these investigations are going to produce? In the case of Mueller, the expectations were very high. And to many, Mueller didn't meet those expectations. And that's a range of reasons why Mueller's findings only went so far. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it didn't didn't go further in terms of its impact directly on Trump. But it will be very interesting to see in the coming months, as this committee tries to finish its work, how it deals with the issue of the expectations of it. This is January 6th. Is a difficult event to take on because so much of it happens in public and so much of it has been reported on. So how can you advance our knowledge of that day and reveal new things about that day? There have been books written about it. There's been countless newspaper articles. The president stood on the ellipse and said what he did. If you're trying to package this investigation in a way that has a propelling impact, how's the committee going to do that? Yeah, I think it's been the case from the beginning that the committee's mission has been as much sort of communicative and and narrative, if you will, as investigative, right? Because it was lies that caused January 6th, right? And and as a magazine writer, of course, I'm always a, a believer in bringing together a large volume of information and synthesizing, connecting the dots and putting it together in a form that people can understand. But there's a real sense that we don't live in the days of the 9-11 report anymore. You can't necessarily put out a doorstop book that's a thousand pages long and expect that to change people's perceptions, particularly when you have the subject of this investigation still out there offering a counter narrative that's obviously compelling to people who very much want to believe it. So that's going to be their challenge going forward. I think they've been really effective so far in the way that they have organized the investigation and proceeded with the investigation. We've seen a lot of people actually come forward voluntarily to talk to the committee who you wouldn't necessarily expect. So there's information that they have that we still don't know about, but beyond any particular revelation, 
that they're going to come up with. I think it's going to be what story can they tell to the public and can it be compelling enough to put to rest some of these lies that are so dangerous and so damaging? All fair, though, two quick counterpoints. The first is what you just say, Molly, when we tend to get these expectations generated, the events that we're seeing in the news are at the combat stages of the people who are not cooperating behind the scenes. We're talking about a few hundred people. Stephanie Grisham was just one who came out today. We hadn't heard about her testimony before. It had some pretty big nuggets about the secret meetings and about Trump's strategy, about Mark Meadows, et cetera. And then second, in terms of theater, the main event is coming, which is going to be the prime time. Well, it's during the day, but then we'll have the prime time highlights on the news of witnesses and Watergate style hearings, even with all the drama of the last several years, it's just been lawyers summarizing things. So they're going to actually choreograph a series of witnesses raising their right hands and trying, hopefully, from their point of view, to give vivid information. Mike, I wanted to come back to you for a final question about the committee, because they've got a big decision to make with Pence. And you've written some really great stuff here and reported on what looks to have been a lot of back and forth and maybe now disenchantment or growing suspicion between the two camps. How do you see the sort of stress points and balance of considerations for Pence in particular? And is it actually going to end up with some kind of full-bodied cooperation from him? which could be the most dramatic testimony of all. Anytime there's an important witness in a congressional investigation, there is a dance that goes on in terms of the negotiation of what will the range of questions look like? How long will they sit for? How will that be done? While that might be going on here, I do think that from reporting on this issue, this won't surprise many, but it was quite stark when I sort of dug into it, is that Pence's calculations are purely political. They are purely about his political future and ability to run for president. He doesn't want to be used to be cleaved off as a cudgel against Trump, against a base that he may need. That's a bare political decision on his part. And that's it. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but I'm not sure it's much more complicated than that. Politicians are politicians. We know what politicians are. But I was still, I guess the word isn't surprised, but I still found it remarkable that it is just a pure political calculation in terms of not wanting to be used by the Democrats to try and undermine the Republicans coming into the midterms and to be used against Trump. At the end of the day, that exists because Donald Trump is still much more popular than Mike Pence or anyone else in the Republican Party. And Pence doesn't feel like he can take him on, at least not at this point. It really is remarkable because... I mean, when you look at the way that Donald Trump shat on Mike Pence a year ago for him to be just kowtowing to Trump, and also the fact that the only way that Mike Pence was ever going to become president of the United States was either through impeachment or removal with the 25th Amendment. He's never going to be elected president. Yet it is absolutely, as Mike says, all a political calculus. To me, it just doesn't make any sense. But he's got conflicting political incentives, right? Because on the one hand, anything that he can do to potentially help disqualify Trump helps him. And I don't think anybody, including Mike Pence, has any hope that Trump is suddenly going to plummet in popularity. But if in some material way Trump is disqualified or or disincentivized from running for president, that is the biggest advantage that Mike Pence could possibly get. 
And in that Republican base, there's not a lot of illusion about which side Mike Pence is on anymore. The people who stormed in there saying, hang Mike Pence, weren't doing it because they thought he was on Trump's side. So he does have an incentive to go against Trump. And I think that was why you saw these baby steps in the direction of cooperation initially on the part of him and his aides, not just that like they were mad that people tried to kill them, which I assume they were, (laughs) but they also, you know, have a political reason in the other direction as well. Molly, you're absolutely right. When you think about how many people in the senior ranks of the Republican Party, from Mitch McConnell to probably a majority of the Republican caucus in the United States Senate, to any of these potential candidates from Pence to DeSantis to Cruz, whoever, they'd love to see Donald Trump taken down tomorrow. They'd love to see him get thrown in jail. They just don't want to have their fingerprints on it. And that's the political calculus that Pence is making. It benefits him, yes, but he can't have his fingerprints on it. It reminds me of covering Ted Cruz in 2016, where he and and everyone else assumed that the air was going to go out of the Trump balloon. So he just tried to suck up to him as much as possible to be the next one standing in line to inherit that support. And then it never happened and and indeed was sort of incapable of happening. Right. And that's why a sort of Republican Party now is sort of trapped in this endless Trump tornado and it can't get out. Hi, this is Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket. I want you to take a second and ask yourself this question. What did you do when democracy was at stake? If you don't have an instant answer, here's an easy place to start. Subscribe to my free newsletter at democracydocket.com. It breaks down the latest in voting rights, redistricting, and democracy. Remember, you can't fight voter suppression if you don't know it's happening. Subscribe now. Let's touch briefly on a few of the developments in Trump's pretty damn bad week that aren't from the committee. So the Fulton County DA, why it's taken a year, I don't know, but convening a special grand jury for investigating charges over the famous, I just want to find 11,780 votes. Clean case, simple case, great audio tape at the center of it but she's just a DA in Fulton County. Do you see this as the biggest threat out there for him in criminal prosecution? I would have thought it would be a significant problem because it seems to me that if you're asking somebody to produce a certain number of votes and you're on tape doing it, it seems to me to be pretty corrupt. On the other hand, I got a little pause yesterday because apparently Raffensperger was quoted as saying something like, oh, this is just a political stunt by the DA. He, of all people, he was the victim of this attempted coercion, and he stood up and did the right thing, and he recorded it precisely because he thought he was being coerced. If he's a recalcitrant witness, it really does go south and fast. Yeah, you're a prosecutor. You can't really function with a recalcitrant witness, and he's trying to save his own political skin there. Because he doesn't want to have his fingerprints on taking down Donald Trump. The thing that has most intrigued me this week, in part because it's been hiding in plain sight for a year, but it really seems to be gathering steam quickly, is this forgery scandal and the seven states, two of whom said, no, we don't want to lie about this. But you have this slate of electors that was going to feed in to the Trump team strategy for Pence, as outlined in the memo by John Eastman, have Pence say, oh, there's two different slates I can't choose and have things delayed. That to me seems like it has really 
very broad upside to be the biggest and most memorable aspect of the whole investigation now of that period. Am I overemphasizing its potential importance, do you think? Well, I defer to the lawyers on the particulars of this, but one of the problems throughout this whole thing, and it goes back to, I think, the discussion about the Electoral Count Act, is that these people are, are incredibly creative at making up crimes that nobody ever thought to make crimes before. That's absolutely right. So was it illegal to do this? I don't know. Nobody ever like thought that you could forge an elector certificate and submit it to Congress. Like, does it technically violate some kind of statute about forging federal documents? Yes. I'll answer. It's totally, but there's this weird thing of like, it's so obvious. But is it more serious when you do it with an election? That's the question, right? Is it more serious when you do it with an election than with like a social security card? And so that's one of the things that could be potentially clarified with some of the things like ECA reform is looking at. And that's sort of a theme with Trump, right? It's illegal to make false statements to the government. It's illegal to fill out a form and put false information. People go to jail all the time. And Harry is a former criminal division head. You can tell. It's like, go for chicken shit stuff that they lie to the government about. (laughs) No, no, but but, relatively speaking, as compared to forging electoral vote certificates where you're basically saying that millions of people voted for candidate A instead of candidate B. And that's the thing about Trump is he does all this stuff out in the open and his people do all this stuff out in the open. One of the things you use as a prosecutor to put people in jail is, hey, they knew they were guilty of this because they hit it. Right. These guys did this out in the open. This is one of the great frustrations of being a reporter in the Trump era that I find. It's that we'll go out and do a bunch of reporting. And we'll figure out that he did something in private, only in the process of that to figure out that he also said the same thing in public. (laughs) And as a journalist, the journalist's job mainly in investigative or political reporting is to find out what happened in private that either contradicts the public or illuminates what's going on, right? But in Trump's case, so much of it was done out in the open. So sometimes we have to go find out that Trump did something in private that he already did in public. Because, oh, if he did it in private, it would give it more legitimacy than if he did it in public, which is usually the reverse. You're talking about the whiplash of Trump and the phenomena. So much of this was done out in the open. Trump was so open about Mueller, was so open about Sessions, was so open about what he thought of the Justice Department. And then you read the Mueller report, and the the Mueller report doesn't mimic Trump's public statements, but they echo each other and they rhyme in a way that's not too different. Trump is supporting perjury and trying to influence witnesses by his tweets. He just tweets this stuff out. It's just crazy. It does, as a prosecutor, make steam come out of your ears because it does give rise to this defense of like, well, he might, he obviously thought, he, you know, it always comes down to a sort of intent defense. I'll just say on the forgeries, though, man, the electors might have thought, well, it's all kind of okay. Except it's not okay because Molly getting to what's technically illegal. It's that little lie where they say we're duly elected and guess what? They're not. What's interesting to me, again, as a prosecutor is a lot of potential cooperating witnesses here. People in five different states who they don't want to go down for Donald Trump. And I think I saw one of the news stories today that some of the potential fake electors balked which shows that they knew something bad was going on. No, two of the states said, let's put in if a court says so. Right. We only have a few minutes, but before our final Talking Five segment, I just want to get your Vegas odd sense. You know, he's been this amazing escape artist, but Houdini eventually got caught. Do you now have the feeling that I think the consensus would be 
people did not have, that some kind of serious justice and reckoning is coming Donald Trump's way? Or do you still see it as just so many frustrating efforts and he eludes them all? We could have had this conversation in January of 2018. Mueller exists. There's an active investigation into whether the president's trying to obstruct justice. The president is openly taking on this investigation. And my guess is, if you go back and look, there were similar conversations you know, going on saying, For sure. wow, this guy's really toast. He's got Mueller and this team of the top prosecutors. Here they come and whatever. And whether it was Mueller or Michael Cohen and SDNY or the first impeachment or the second impeachment or Georgia state laws, and then we're back in New York, district attorney's office. And a year ago, we thought we'd never hear from him again. That was Mitch McConnell's calculation. I'm just trying to be sober about it because- Somebody's got to be. History is some lesson here. There's a big difference here, though. He's no longer president of the United States. He was able to use the fact that he was president of the United States to insulate himself with the first impeachment, with Mueller, to some extent with Michael Cohen. So he was able to use the bully pulpit and the powers of that and the influence of that and the power over the Justice Department to insulate himself. He's not president of the United States anymore. Damn, it is quite remarkable how powerful the president of the United States is. We saw some of that. That being said, he's been out of office for a year. He still has legal problems, but there's nothing staring him down right now that looks like a clean kill in any sense. There might be. There might be something coming soon. There might be whatever, but we're a year out. A lot of people have had a lot of time to do things, and he's not looking at a trial in which we've seen a lot of the evidence and we're like, oh, wow, he's, he's really toast. He might be, but I'm just trying to provide some sobriety. Yeah, I mean, as a reporter, I don't make predictions, but I think you have to define what accountability means in this sense, right? And I would argue that he's already been held accountable and our mechanism of accountability in a democracy is he lost an election. Is he going to end up in jail? Is he going to end up broken, penniless on the street? What kind of accountability is it that people think would constitute the final blow, I don't think that's really been defined. Now, there's a larger thing about, you know, is Trump a political problem or a criminal problem? And what is the best way that Trump will be dealt with? And how will Trump be dealt with? Will he be dealt with politically or will he be dealt with criminally? To Molly's point, he suffered the ultimate political consequence. All right. Just a minute or two left for our final feature, Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener, and we each have to answer it in five words or fewer. And here it is. In 2007, Molly Ball won $100,000 on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Really? If you were on this show, who from the Trump administration would be your lifeline? That's hard. I guess it would be Kellyanne. There you have it. She has a broad knowledge of, of all the signs of things that would be on that show. You know, that was going to be my answer, but I thought I'd be accused of trolling you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I can't think of anyone else. Mike, you have an uh, answer here? Um, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's nine words. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> right. There you go. Bill Barr, maybe? Oh, that's interesting. And his book's coming out soon. He may be due for a little bit of a revision. Anyway, this is way too easy, but Fiona Hill. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Molly, George, and Michael. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter 
at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted interesting discussions about the dreams that people apparently are having during COVID, as well as the devolution to sort of vicious infighting among the terrorist groups who had been united on January 6th and other explainers and more content. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias, David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers, and production assistants by Rhea Cohn-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Senator Al Franken for our talking sidebar explaining the talking filibuster that he and Norm Ornstein have proposed as a possible way forward in the wake of opposition to more substantial filibuster reform by Senators Manchin and Cinema. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>